0: Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would hear our prayer, that you would come and be with us. We know you're here. We ask that you would, in an extraordinary way, uh, be with us to bless us, to open our eyes, to behold wonderful things in your Word. Lord, we know that without your Spirit's presence among us, We will be blind to the wonders of this story that we find in Luke 1, and we know, Lord, without your help, uh, we have gathered in vain. So, Lord, we pray that you would draw near to us, help us to see and behold wonderful things in your word so that we can be changed and live for you in this world and see you on the day when our Lord returns or when we see you face to face. And Lord, we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, for the next two Sundays, we're going to take a step away from the Gospel of Mark over, or back, rather, um, over, wow, I don't even know my order of the New Testament. Wow. That is embarrassing. You know, I paid a lot of money to go to seminary. We're going to take a step over to the Gospel of Luke, so I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. Luke chapter 1, and given that it's just a week away from December 25th, it seems appropriate for us to spend some time together thinking about the miracle of Christmas. There are a number of texts, of course, that we could go to to look at this, Uh, but as I prayed through the options I kept coming back to a section of Scripture called Mary's Magnificat, or Mary's Praise. Luke 1, 46-55. And what I love about this passage, well, there are a number of things. It's the first Christmas carol, really. What I love about this passage is how remarkably God-centered it is. It's a a God-centered text that really calls us back to focus on the giver of every good thing. And in a season of life, or season of the year rather, where our attention is on family and friends and gifts and new toys and other good things, uh, this passage calls us to reorient onto the origin of all of those good and wonderful things that we get to enjoy during this season of the year. And, and really, it, it reorients us back onto God himself, who is the greatest and best of all beings. Well, except for the first two verses of Luke 1, 46 to 55, God is the subject of every verb. Right? God is the one at work in this little passage. God is doing everything here, and the text really calls us to see and marvel Not at Mary, but at the marvelous work of God. And now it may seem obvious to you uh, that God is at work, that He doesn't rest, although of course Genesis 1 tells us that God has rested from His work of creation, but God hasn't rested at all from His work of sustaining the world that He has made. God is at work in creation, orchestrating it and all of human history, including your history, your personal history, your family history, your past week, and your morning, to its appointed end. And what is the appointed end of all things? The glory of God and the joy of His people. The glory of God and the joy of Of his people. Scripture is clear about that, and Scripture is clear that God is not an absentee God. God has not wound up the world, as it were, and just let it go. No, God is at work. I want to read you a couple of passages Psalm 75, rather. I'm not going to read them, I'm just going to paraphrase them for you. Psalm 75 7 tells us that God is certainly at work bringing down the proud and exalting the humble. Daniel 2, 21 says that God is at work actively in human history appointing kings and bringing kings down. We might say appointing presidents and congressmen and senators. And God, that scripture Daniel 2 says that God actively rules the kingdoms of mankind and bestows power on whomever He wills. Genesis 8, Acts 1, say that God actively directs the times and seasons and all the events of world history. He's involved at work. Amos 4, 7, and Psalm 135 tell us that God is even involved and in charge of weather patterns. He causes the clouds to rise and lightning to strike where it strikes. Psalm 104, wonderful psalm about the Lord of creation. It says that the animals of the earth and the fish of the sea all look to one being to be fed. And that's God. In fact, that same psalm tells us that God is so meticulously involved in the world and at work in the world that He even causes the grass to grow. He is at work. He he has not set the world up and just let it go. He has not orchestrated or arranged the circumstances of your life, and now is just letting it all unfold haphazardly. Now, God is carefully at work orchestrating the affairs of every individual's life. I love the way that Spurgeon captured this. You've probably heard this quote. He wrote, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less Then God wishes that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered by God as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, the fall of leaves from a poplar tree, is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is at work. He is meticulously orchestrating every detail, including every detail of your wonderful and often complicated and difficult life. He is at work. Every detail of the past year, thinking about our church, Every detail of the past year, every detail of the past four and a half months has been carefully planned and carried out by a loving and gracious and wise God. Nothing in all of human history has ever happened by chance or by fate. All of it is under the charge of God and he's working it all, moving it all to its appointed end, which is his glory and your eternal joy. Now, you agree with all that. Maybe, some of you, most of you, hopefully. I don't see any stones raised. (laughs) But whether you recognize this reality of God's wonderful work or not, it's true. This is the way God works. But I want to remind you of something very important this morning. That there is a direct correlation between your present happiness, your present joy, and your awareness of God's gracious, careful, methodical work in your life. I'll say that again. There is a direct correlation between your present joy and your awareness of God's meticulous, methodical, gracious work in your life. The more you are aware that God has decreed the leaky faucet, the happier you'll be. It reorients everything. To focus on God's work is the secret ingredient to joy in life. If you see that God is at work constantly in all the details of your life, you might even find yourself celebrating that leaky faucet. But above all, you will see that the work that God is doing is good and wise even when you don't even, oh, rather, even when you can't even comprehend how this could be good, right? God is doing good even when you can't see it. Well, so what I want to do with you over the next few weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, is I want us to see all that I just said from this passage in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. I think what we are going to see is that the, the, the theme or refrain in this passage is worshiping God for His wonderful, glorious work. And the, This morning, we'll take just the first couple of verses, and the next week, we'll look at the rest of it. But I want us to walk through this text under the headings that you see in your outline. The first being the beneficiaries of God's work. And the second being the response to God's work. All right? So why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 1, verse 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Amen. You can be seated. So first, let's look at the beneficiaries of God's wonderful, gracious work. All right, look at verse 46. And Mary said. Now, we have to figure out who is this woman? Who is Mary? Now, there is certainly a lot about Mary floating around in religious circles that is terribly wrong. And there, the the amount of error stems primarily from the stories spun by the Catholic Church about Mary. And it's led to all sorts of confusion about who this woman really was. And as we'll see, Mary is not a dispenser of grace, right? Mary is not to be prayed to. We know that, but it, it needs to be said. Mary is the recipient of God's grace. And she really kind of, she comes to us as sort of an exemplar, an example Of the kind of person who benefits from the wonderful, gracious work of God. Who gets God's hand? Who gets God's actions on their behalf? Mary. So, who is this girl? Well, we learn from Scripture that Mary was an average young girl who was part of the peasant class in Israel. Now, you can look over in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. You can see that she was from the region of Galilee, which was one of the poorest regions in Israel, and the town of Nazareth is where she was from, which was one of the most despised villages in all of Israel. You remember Nathanael's comment, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the reputation of Nazareth. It's a town from which nothing good could ever really come. Now, we also know from verse 27 of Luke 1 that Mary was engaged to a working-class man named Joseph. He was a carpenter. And we can gather from the customs of the day that Mary probably was very young, uncomfortably young for us. She was very young. The custom in Israel was for girls and boys to be betrothed or engaged while they were still as young as 12 or 13. seems extraordinary to us and makes us a little uncomfortable. But let me hopefully help you overcome that. Uh, we need to remember two things. One, that the, the average life expectancy in the first century was less than 50. All right, so that sort of demanded, if you wanted to have a, a decently long marriage, you had to expedite, expedite things a little bit. But secondly, in Jewish culture, And really, in almost every culture besides American culture, adulthood starts much earlier than 18. We have invented this new phase of life called adolescence, and I'm not going to say much about that, but that is an American or maybe a Western invention, I would say. Um, And that extends from the age of 12 to 19, the last time that I looked at it, but it's constantly growing um, or being extended out. But this sort of prolonged childhood that we call adolescence, cultures throughout history have not had that. Uh, it hasn't been a part of uh, world history to prolong childhood until you were 20. Um, that's an American invention. It's probably not just American, but at any rate. In Jewish society, a girl reached womanhood at the age of 12. And that's still the case. And a boy transitioned into manhood at 13. So according to custom then, it made perfect sense, and this is the way that it would happen, when a boy or a girl reached 12 or 13, they would begin the process of arranging a marriage for them. I mean, they're adults. right? We need to help them enter into society and be uh, participants in Uh, in culture and be productive members of society. So that happened really early. So we can deduce from that that Mary is probably very young, 12, 13, 14, early teens. She's betrothed to this carpenter named Joseph who was also likely young, who had also been a peasant himself. So what we want to gather from that is that Mary is really nothing at all. She is just a sort of, we don't want to call her a hillbilly, uh, but she lived out in the sticks of Israel. Right? She's a Nazareth. Uh, she's poor. She's young. She's a woman. Right? There's nothing extraordinary about her at all. She is, by all accounts, a very plain and unassuming young girl living in Nazareth. Okay. But, All of a sudden, in Luke 1, verse 26, we read that God all of a sudden enters into the scene of Mary's life in an extraordinary way. Now, to be sure, God has certainly been at work in Mary's life up to this point. He has orchestrated all the details of her Poor societal outcasts coming from Nazareth. He has orchestrated all those details of her life. But that's all been really the invisible hand of God's providence in her life. But now, all of a sudden, in verse 26, Mary gets to see the veil pulled back, as it were, and see what God is really up to. Now, that is a wonderful thought, to just consider And if you could sort of peek back behind the veil and know what it is that God is doing with these really difficult things in life, I would imagine if we could know the end from the beginning, we would respond as Mary responded, full of joy, inexpressible. Because God is at work doing something good. And Mary gets an insight. In verse 26, we read, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Okay, so the angels are at God's side, ready to do his bidding. That's where they are. Right? They are ministering, uh, ministering spirits for our good. And they are at God's side, ready to do whatever he calls them to do. And in this moment, Gabriel is sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Interestingly, we also know from Luke's genealogy that Mary was a descendant of David as well, but from a different son of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, verse 28, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. You can just imagine Mary's face. Naturally, verse 29 says that she was perplexed at this statement. I love that. Uh, what? Favored one? This, it doesn't make sense. Perplexing. Why me? Right? Why am I, all of a sudden, called the favored one? Why is God making it known to me that He is especially, verse 28, with me? He's always been with her. He's, she's always had His favor, we will see that she was just a humble, godly young lady. But now all of a sudden she sees clearly, and in an extraordinary, really supernatural way, that God is with her. And Mary knows she's perplexed because she understands who she is. She understands her status. She understands her own humanity. That she is just a simple, rural, poor girl in a village that has nothing to um, spectacular about it and she has nothing in herself to gain the attention of the world much less the attention of the greatest and best of beings, God. So she's perplexed. Now the question is, how is it that this unassuming, simple girl gains the attention of God and becomes the beneficiary of God's wonderful, gracious work. How, how does that happen? Why? Well, I think you all know the answer to that. We know that throughout Scripture, what we see time and time again is that God always chooses the most unlikely people to be the beneficiaries of His gracious work. But that has been a theme that we have been drumming the past few months. We have not orchestrated that. This is just seems like God's message for us. We're all very simple, ordinary people, and God delights to use people like us. We see this same refrain in Moses, in David, in Gideon. We see it in Amos. And we could really go on to multiply examples, but the pattern that God has set for us in history is that He especially delights to take a certain kind of person and exalt them. In the eyes of their contemporaries. And then also to use them mightily for his own purposes. Now, what kind of person is that? Well, the common denominator in all the people we see used by God throughout history is that they are people who are poor in spirit, humble, low, people who recognized that they had a need. And we've seen this in Jesus. We've seen this in Jesus' teaching, that it's those who are well, those who are well have no need of a physician. Meaning, if you think everything's okay, you don't need God. And if you think you've got it all together, what need do you have of God? Now, I will tell you, that's a delusion. You don't have it all together. You have a need. But God is especially attracted, I know this is speaking in a human, human way, God is especially drawn to low, humble, weak people who recognize their own spiritual poverty. And we know the corollary to that is He is especially repulsed by the proud. Those who are autonomous, those who think they can go on and do things their own way, those who have no need of God and want to do life under their own authority. Well, we see that in history, God's pattern is to draw near to the humble, and that over and over, this same pattern repeats itself. It's here with Mary. And what we're seeing when we see this happening in history, where God draws near to the weak and low, is simply the realization of a theological reality. All right, when we see this over and over in history, what we're seeing is that history is simply bringing to realization the reality that God delights in humble people. Right? The type of person who gets the eye of God is the humble person. And that reflects something about the being and the person of God, about his heart. Listen to Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever whose name is Holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And so it would, you would assume that if God is in the high and holy place, the only people who are going to be able to get up there to them, Him are the people who are strong enough, who have the will enough, who have the strength enough and the desire enough to climb all the way up to Him and be with Him. But the text goes on. I dwell on a high and holy place and also... With the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite are the spiritually or even physically broken. The lowly, of course, are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty and their need for God. So God is this transcendent being who dwells and inhabits eternity. And he also dwells and inhabits the heart of the low. Psalm 1827. God saves his needy people, but the proud he abases. Psalm 1827. God, God saves his needy people, but the proud he abases. Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in justice and teaches them his way. You want to know God's way? You want to be led by God? Be humble. Be low. Recognize your creaturely status before God. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, He regards the lowly. You think sometimes, I know you think this, um, that you are so low that God must be disappointed in you. You are so low that God would never come to you. You've got to sort of work yourself up and get it all together and then you can go to God. You've got it wrong. The people God comes to are the people who are so low that they don't even think they can lift their eyes up. They they are low. They're broken. They're contrite. And that's not just people who are poor and impoverished. It can be the wealthy, the mighty, the kings. If a king, a mighty, powerful person brings themselves low, humbles themselves, God delights to draw near, regardless of social status. He draws near to the low. And maybe the most concise statement of all is James 4.6. God gives grace to the humble, but He is opposed to the proud. Mary is just actualizing that theological reality. She's just proving it. It's just an example of God, who God is. He comes to this low woman who has no no prestige, nothing about her that should gain the eye of God. And God comes to her and does exactly what he says he does for low, humble people. And that is he gives them his help. He gives them his grace and he gives them his strength. The proud, on the other hand, always get God's resistance. And really the story of Christmas uh, and God's work through Mary specifically is just another example of that truth. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's the humble people who get his help. It's the people in darkness that see the light. It's the hungry who are fed. And we could go on about that. But look with me at Luke 1, verse 30, and we'll keep going with Mary's story. If you don't know what I'm doing here, I'm trying to give us some context before we get into the Magnificat. Some of you are thinking, is he ever going to get in there? I will, trust me. But I just want to set the stage for, for Mary, for our study of this hymn. Chapter 1, verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right. typical babies don't have this sort of thing said about them. This is an extraordinary promise. In all of history in one moment is coalescing in this poor, unassuming girl's life. For thousands of years, God's people had waited for this promised Messiah to come. And all the way back, Eve was hoping that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And the women who followed, godly women, humble women, all hoped that they would be the mother of the Messiah. The Messiah is the promised Messiah king, and savior of the world. But in the fullness of time, God chose the most unexpected little girl in Nazareth, a young lady, I should say, named Mary. She was the one who would bring the savior of the world into the world. It's amazing. What a privilege, what a joy, what a blessing, and what a reversal of all the expectations. And in another sense, what a simple confirmation that God's M.O. in history is to make the poor in spirit the beneficiaries of His work. So there's an easy application for us. You want to see God's hand? You want to rejoice at God's work in your life? Well, humble yourself, First Peter, under His mighty hand, And you will find that as you do so, you gain new clarity to see Him at work in all the details of life. And you will also find that the joy in your heart will overflow into the only fitting response to the wonderful work of God. And that's point two, which is joyful, exuberant worship. Let me show you a couple things about that. First, Mary's response to God's work. How does she respond? Well, first, she simply believes God. That's almost an incidental detail in the text, but it's fundamental. Uh, Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me, according to your word. She also, she recognizes herself as a slave, but she is just open-handedly, Lord, whatever you want to do, bring it. I am your slave. Oh, for a heart like that. Whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm yours. I'm your slave. Do with me what you will. And then look down. I'm trying to show you that she responds in faith and belief. So look down at verse 42. Mary receives the promise of God. Then she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's home home, And Elizabeth, we know, is also miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, she cries out, saying, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me? Mary is also humbled, right? How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And then notice verse 45. This is what I wanted you to see. Blessed is she who what? Believed. Blessed means happy. Happy. Happy is she who believed. Now, friends, that is a fundamental principle of the Christian life. You want to be happy? You want to be blessed? Believe God. Take Him at His word. Believe His promises and you will find your joy your happiness soaring. There's there's something of an equation there, and I'll show you that in just a minute, but she believed, verse 45, she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, Elizabeth knew that Mary was fully believing the promises of God. Now, how does Mary, Elizabeth, know that? Kyle, brother, I don't know if you're fully believing the promises of God. I hope you are. But, the only way Elizabeth would know that Mary is fully believing God's promise is that Mary Elizabeth somehow has been told by that, you know, told of that through prophecy. Maybe even the prophecy that she's speaking as she uh, greets Mary. We don't know, but she knows for a fact that Mary has responded with godly faith to what God has said to her. She has responded believingly. She had received an extraordinary promise, and her response was simply to take God at His word. Now, you have to think about that for a minute. I want us to think about this. What will be the result of God's wonderful, gracious promise to Mary over the course of the next, I don't know, few months? What is the result of this promise? Not a lot of good for Mary. This is a complicated thing that is unfolding for Mary. She's young, Uh, she's newly betrothed to Joseph, usually that would take about a year, and that would essentially be like a marriage contract, you know, you'd have to have a legal divorce to get out of that betrothal. She's committed to him, and the primary purpose of that year-long engagement was to demonstrate fidelity, purity, faithfulness. And now here she is, wonderfully, God shows up to her and says, Mary, you're going to be pregnant. And Mary's response, of course, we see that, is, verse 34, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Right? This doesn't biologically work. And God, of course, says it will work. This is a supernatural, miraculous thing that is unfolding. But Mary is now faced with the reality that she might be kicked out of her family. She might, be, um, she might lose, rather, her fiancé, Of course she's going to lose her reputation, whatever little reputation she had. Probably most likely a reputation of godliness. We know that Mary had hidden the word in her heart. We know that much. Because she, uh, Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, if you pricked him, his blood would be Bible. And that's Mary. She's pricked. And what flows out is verse 46 to 55, It is full of Bible. There are all these cross-references. As we read it, you're probably thinking of texts all over the place. And this is what's happened to Mary. We know that she has a godly reputation, but all of a sudden, in a moment, here is a girl with a godly reputation who is now viewed as unfaithful. She's lost all of the little credibility she might have had, and she would have likely been thrown out, and she could have even faced death. That was the consequence of adultery of unfaithfulness. Those are all the consequences, really, of conception out of wedlock. But I want you to notice, what do we not hear from Mary? Complaints. We don't hear Mary say, wait, 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 wait. God, what are you going to do? Look at this, this, and this. How are you going to work out these, tale, these details? Right, what are you going to do here or there? No, we don't hear a single complaint from Mary, not even a, you know, a moan in her voice. And why is that? Well, she, she's believing God. But look at verse 38 of chapter 1. Behold the slave, the bondslave of the Lord. I think that's key. I think she understands fundamentally that her life is not her own. She's a slave of God. She belongs to body, life, soul, to God, who is her faithful creator. And He's the one who's orchestrating all the details of her life up to this point. And she knows that He is her caretaker. He's the one who's at work here. And it's not Mary's job to untangle all the difficulties and all the intricacies of relationships and reputation. Her job is to simply believe the promise of God. And let God deal with all the meticulous orchestration of the details of life. Mary doesn't have the capacity to control all of that. She does, by God's grace, have the capacity to trust God. And so that's what she does. She sees this is the hand of God. She sees that her life is not her own. How dare I moan to God about the consequences? This thing is not mine. All right, what do I have that I've not been given? As all belongs to him, I will simply trust him to untangle the difficulties that lie ahead of me, and I will believe that, as the hymn writer says, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I don't know where this thing is going, and it seems really bitter and hard right now, but I trust the Lord. And so she walks in faith, believing God's promises and believing that God is her shepherd. He's going to take care of her. Now, there is something of an equation here and I want to show it to you. The equation is this. One, if you want to live joyfully, happily, one, recognize what Mary recognized, that you do not belong to yourself. You want to have a happy life? Realize that your life doesn't belong to you. Does that sound familiar? Right. Um, You want to save your life? What does Jesus say you have to do? Lose it. You want to lose your life? Well, try to hang on to it and make it your own. The path to joy is understanding that I am not mine. You are not yours. So if God ordains a leaky faucet today, get over it. You don't belong to yourself. This is God's will for you. This is His his delight for you today is that you get to get under that cabinet and get a sore back and all of those things that come with that. But this is God's will. He could have stopped the the leaky faucet, but has he? No. So what does he want me to do about it? is a good principle. Could he have healed me of this disease? Yes, he could have. Has he? No, he hasn't well, what does he want me to do about it? I can tell you it's not moan. Right? It's to trust him. It's as important that you trust God as it is that you believe him. Throw yourself on him. No one wants these kind of diagnoses. None of us want that. Mary doesn't want the trial that's set before her. That's certainly true. But she trusts that God is at work, doing good even when it looks remarkably bleak from one angle. So that's the first thing. You want to have a joyful life? One, recognize that you don't belong to yourself. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Right? You start thinking you're your own. You're going to start trying to control other people and orchestrate things to get what you want. It's a lot easier and a lot more uh, joyful to let all of your preferences go and just live for the Lord and say, behold, the bond slave of God. All right? Second, you want to have a joyful life? Fully believe His promises. Is that easy. All right. Resign yourself to Him. He's the Lord, not me. And then believe Him. Trust His promises. You any time you're faced with a promise in Scripture, you have two options. Only two. You will believe God or you will call him a liar. Those are your options. You will believe that his grace can cover the depths of your sin, or you will say, no, God, you can't do that. It's not as you say. You will believe that he's a faithful shepherd who will help you navigate the difficulties of the trial that's in front of you, or you will say, no, God, you're you're not so reliable. I'll fall back on my own strength here and my own wisdom here. friend." If you lean on your own understanding, that staff will break every time, and you'll find yourself face down uh, and hopeless and helpless. Far better to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways to acknowledge Him, to recognize Him, to recognize that He's at work in this situation, and I don't understand the details. I don't understand what's happening, what's unfolding, or where this thing is going, but I know that he's in charge. He's at work. And if he controls the splashes of the foam on the ship, he controls the details of my life. And friends, if you resign yourself to God and believe his promises, you will skip. You will be full of joy. You will respond, verse 46, as Mary did. My my soul... Exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That is the response of the person who sees they belong to God and who believes His promises, and all of a sudden you see, wow, He's at work in my life and I've never seen it before. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, my soul and my spirit. It's a parallelism here. It's, she's saying the same thing twice, and it's just a way to in, impact or to bring what she is saying across even harder, even more in-depth, or even more rich. In fact, she's so overwhelmed and joyful that she doesn't just say, I'm so happy today. She writes a poem. So even the style, the genre that she chooses to express her joy is one in which joy is best expressed. A poem, a poetry. We see this all the way back in Genesis 2. When God presents Adam with this very special creation called woman, you remember what he does? He writes a poem. He's overjoyed at this woman that God has presented. He's, he's, he burst open, right, with Joy. And that's what we see with Mary. From the very core of her being, she says, My soul, my spirit, one, exalts the Lord. Meaning, to declare someone to be great. By the way, this is where the word magnificat comes from. It's a Latin word. To make great. And this is what she does. She says, My soul declares God to be great. The idea is really to try to somehow, she's so happy, she wants to somehow lift God even higher than He already is. And she can't do that. But in her mind, she understands that something has happened so remarkable that she wants to lift Him up even a little higher. And I think we recognize that. We experience that. I mean, if, it's like we understand that we've just sort of waded out, ankle deep into the depths of God. There's so much more about God we want to know. And Mary here is saying, my core, my heart, my soul seeks to exalt Him even higher. She understands that she's barely even begun to understand the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. So she wants to see Him lifted even higher. And notice carefully, notice this. Verse 46. She calls... She uses two titles, 46 and 47, two titles to refer to the Lord. My Lord first, and then in verse 47, my Savior. My soul exalts in the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Those are not incidental titles. We've already seen my Lord. She understands she is possessed by God. She's owned by God. He is the one who possesses her. So all is well. Whatever comes, God's in charge. But then she uses the second title, My Savior. My Savior. This is the title, I think, that shows us that Mary has in mind something far more than just you know, economical, social salvation. God is not just pulling her out of her poor Nazareth, you know, village of Nazareth, out of Galilee, into some platform to be praised. That's not what she's talking about. Some people argue that, but that is not at all what she's talking about. She knows The salvation that God is accomplishing through this Messiah that's in her belly is a salvation where the one in her belly will be called Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. this is what the angel says to her. He shall be called Jesus and he'll do what? He will save his people from their economical poverty. From their sins. Mary knows the one that she is going to bear is the one who will not only save her from her sins, but save all of her people from her sins. And friends, that reality is true today. God has sent, and the most remarkable work of all, has sent Jesus into the world in a little baby, born of a virgin. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's a spectacular, wonderful work of God. But... It goes further and really culminates in a work of God, really, that surpasses any other work that God has ever accomplished, and that work is the saving of sinners. On the cross, Jesus, this little baby, He lives, He grows, He's perfect, He's holy and righteous, and think about the pain of Mary's heart. She had a perfect son, and here He is, crucified. You know how hard it is when your son, who you think is perfect, who's not perfect, um, you know, he's bullied or mistreated, and that is painful, it's hard, uh, when their friends are unkind. But here is Mary, whose son actually was perfect, and she sees him tried by unjust men, jealous men who hate him, and she sees him crucified. She, she sees him die, Talk about the pain that this woman experienced. And then she sees him rise, right? And talk about the joy that she would have experienced. But all of that really points to this core work that God accomplished at Christmas. And it's not necessarily a baby in a manger. It really culminates in reconciliation of sinful man to God. And that's really what this is all about. God sending Jesus into the world to die in the stead, in the place of you and of me. And the ones who benefit from that work, that wonderful, gracious work, you know who they are? Those who will confess and admit their own spiritual poverty. If you will come to God and admit to Him that you have nothing to earn His favor, you will find That you, like Mary, are exalted. You are lifted up. And you will find, as I think it was John Wesley who said, his heart was strangely warmed upon hearing the gospel and understanding the gospel. You'll find that. You'll find a joy that you've never known before. And you know why? Your eyes will be opened to see that this is not by chance that you're at Calvary Bible Church this morning your eyes will be open to see that God has been meticulously at work in your life all along to bring you to this one point where you finally bow the knee to Jesus and say, save me. And you'll find that he is the gracious, merciful, wonderful savior of sinners that he promises in his word. All right, let's pray. Father, we praise you. For your goodness. We praise you for sending your Son into the world. and Lord, it is a, a spectacular thing for us uh, to contemplate the gracious work that you have done for us in your Son. It's wonderful for us to think about the virgin birth, to think about Mary, to think about the shepherds and the angels and the heavenly hosts singing glory to you. These are all wonderful but, Father, all of these things point to the greatest wonder of all, and that is that you could show love to such loveless people like us and make us your sons and daughters. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to stay humble and low, and as we go through the next few weeks, as we remember the incarnation, would help us to remember your wonderful work carried out among us in Jesus but also carried out among us every day we live. And may we be people who see our poverty, but recognize that we are possessed by you and live lives of praise and worship for your greatness. And we ask these things in Christ's name.